This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Yes, this is the Talk of Fame Network, and not, I said not, the Talk of Fantasy Football Game Network, because if you remember, Ron Borges, it was about five weeks ago that you told me you had a hot tip for me for my first pick in the fantasy draft, and uh, it wasn't Todd Gurley, it wasn't Todd Gurley whom I chose, it was, who was it, Ron? Leonard Fournette. Fournette. Yeah, who not only has a Great score pick. this season, but who has barely played because of a hamstring issue that continues to keep him sidelined. So, Ron, good thing I did what I usually do, which is not pay attention to you. <laughs> well, you and my wife. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, we have something common. Uh, but, you know, I'm just, uh, I was just I have to remind you what my great and good friend Bill Parcells used to always say. You can't buy insurance <laughs> for some things, and that includes the running back's hammy, I guess. Uh, what are you going to do? I don't know. Well, I'm going to stick with Todd, Todd Gurley. That's what I'm going to do. But the fact of the matter is uh, we were both wrong, actually. I guess I should have taken friend of the show. That would be friend of the show, Patrick Mahomes. Whoa. Wow. Gooseman. You covered Chiefs for years. You seen anything like what's going on there? Yes, but for 16 painful years, the Chiefs watched as John Elway was working the match. Yeah, them and right. everyone else in the AFC West. Well, now the shoe is on the other foot. In Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs now have the hammer, and everyone else in the West is the nail. Yeah, that's right. Well, Patrick Mahomes, guys, sorry, is not with us today. Uh, neither Todd Gurley or Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette's nursing that hamstring, Ron. So if you're looking for fantasy advice, you're at the wrong address. But if you want to hear from Mahomes' agent, Lee Steinberg, yeah, he's here with us today. So our Hall of Fame candidate. Troy Vincent, now the NFL's Director of Football Operations and a man who has something to say about roughing the passer, and author Ian O'Connor, who just wrote a best-selling book about Bill Belichick and the Pats, and Hall of Fame voter Paul Domorich tells us about the Philadelphia Eagles, not the best Eagles, not in the Pro Football of Fame. We're also going to celebrate this season reaching the one-quarter poll, which means you're going to get a lot of Patrick Mahomes, too, and Gooseman. What do people in Kansas City want more? Season of Mahomes? Or week at Arthur Bryant's. You can get a lot of good barbecue in Kansas City, but quality quarterbacks are rare. We'll take them. Okay, well, we're not we're not going to Bryant's either, or LC's, but we are going to tour the NFL at the quarter pole and assess what's going on with quarterbacks in the passing game. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, Gooseman, looks like it's your favorite time of the year. NHL season starts this week, so who do you got? My heart says the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's Canada's game, but that nation hasn't had a Stanley Cup champ since Montreal in 1993. Ooh. They've had cup parades in Dallas, Tampa, and Raleigh, North Carolina since then, but none in Canada. I think it's time the cup went back north of the border and be fitting if an original six team took it there. I'm with you. I know Ron's got, however. Go ahead, Ron. I'm all for an original six team, too. The only one that counts, the bees. Young bees. They're about to become the Vegas Knights of the East. They're going to. We have young kids, 19, 20, 21 years old. It's unbelievable. We are. Congratulations. How good would they be if they had not traded Tyler Sagan? Don't get me started. I told you, we got the greatest line in history. Phil Gessel, Joe Thornton, and Tyler Sagan. The traded line. 
Goose, you're asking the man who wanted me to take Leonard Fournette with the first draft pick. Come on. Jeez. Oh, I'll tell you what, guys. I'm taking anyone but my Habs. Ooh, wow. It's going to be a long season. Whoa. A lot of youth. A lot of people saying Sid Dimash, including me. It's going to be a tough year. Um, but I'll tell you what's not going to be tough, or at least hasn't been. And that's passing the football in the NFL. <laughs> Probably surprises, yeah, absolutely no one. Uh, the quarterbacks are on a record pace, and Goose, I saw a note that you posted the other day that there have been 12 400-yard games this season, where there were eight, I think, 400-yard passing games all of last season. Yep. Um, there's also, by the way, there have been two games in the first four weeks with quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, who we already mentioned. He's one of them, and Mitch Trubisky's the other. Two quarterbacks throwing for six touchdowns each. Goose, what in the name of Billy Kilmer or Joe Cap is going on here? I mean, are quarterbacks this good, or is the league tilted so much towards offense that uh, this is just what's going to happen? No, the rules have destroyed Bozo once a great game. Defense has been outlawed. You can't hit the quarterback. You can't touch receivers. It's now a game of pitch and catch. And these stats are all so artificial, so much so that a journeyman quarterback like Ryan Fitzpatrick, easy, the first easy. quarterback, <laughs> easy, consecutive 400-yard passing games. Not John Unitas, not Dan Marino, not Brett Favre, the Amish rifle. You talk about a Harvard guy. Lay off. Come on. Yes. Um, Come on. Smart well, guy. let's talk about let's talk about Mahomes for a minute because everybody else is. I mean, I heard someone the other day say, "What about all someone, there you go. That's right. Basically, <laughs> I heard someone say something that I heard the first year of RG3 in Washington, and, and I'm, I'm serious about this. And that's this guy told me, we've never seen anything like this before. He also asked me if he was going to the Hall of Fame. I said, please. But, you know, as a matter of fact, we have. Uh, remember Marino's rookie year or Warner's breakout season? I, I know they couldn't run like this guy could, and, and I don't know if I remember them throwing left-handed p- passes either. But I will say, Ron, I mean, this guy... He's worth watching. He's worth the price of admission. Yeah, no, he's been good. But, I mean, look, I remember Ken Staler throwing a left-handed pass behind his back for a completion. Of course, he was left-handed, but still. <laughs> of course, he was uh, left-handed. Who cares? <laughs> but, you know, look, Mahomes has been great. But uh, I've already seen a report that he's a franchise quarterback. And I know. saying he's a legend. A legend? <laughs> Shouldn't you have to at least have to have changed your underwear one time to be a legend? A legend? Jeez. Four games. Creepers. Oh, my God. did it the right way. Chiefs used a first-round pick on Mahomes, but didn't plan. He sat, watched, and learned as Alex Smith took Chiefs to playoffs last season. There's a benefit to waiting to get on the field. Philip, Philip Rivers sat his rookie season. Dante Culpepper sat. Chad Pennington all became pro bowlers. Aaron Rodgers sat three years. Now we're sizing him up for a gold jacket. If you can be patient, there are rewards. Andy Reid was patient, and now Mahomes is the big reward. Ron, sounds like Goose has got him going to the Hall of Fame. Jeez, for sounds like, jeez, holy God, Whoa. he's a Mahomes man. Who knew? <laughs> so, did he, well, did he once have a sandwich in Michigan? Mahomes or something? <laughs> Stop for lunch? No, no Goose lived he in did, Kansas City. He covered had, the he had pitched in Tiger Stadium one time. Well, there you he go. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. It all right and, there. and Goose lived in Kansas City and covered the Chiefs. So, Goose, I want to direct this question to you. What do you make of these guys? Um, I mean, he's on a pace to throw 56 TDs, which he's not going to. Von Miller just labeled him a great quarterback after, of course, Ron said four games. And the Chiefs <laughs> haven't lost. They haven't lost despite – and to me, Goose, this is a huge factor despite having the worst defense in the league. I mean, if defense wins championships, what does this mean for the Chiefs? Well, Giants won a Super Bowl in 2011 with the NFL's 27th-ranked defense. Saints won in 2009 with a 25th-ranked defense. And Ron's Patriots won their first Super Bowl in the NFL 24th-ranked defense in 2001. It's nice to have that shutdown defense, but it didn't do a whole lot of good for the Minnesota Vikings last year. Yeah, right. If you have a quarterback, a Super Bowl is winnable regardless of whatever else you have. And it appears the Chiefs do have that quarterback now. 
Okay, guys, I cut to the quick here. If I gave you a choice at Mahomes or Carson Wentz, whom would you take, Ron? Well, let's see now. Uh, Carson Wentz has done it in, in about 10 games, and Mahomes has done it in about four games. Uh, can I take Aaron Rodgers instead? I mean, <laughs> come on. These guys, there. I mean, uh, uh, how long? Uh, it wasn't that long ago that Jimmy Garoppolo was better than Tom Brady, uh, you know, and, and now he's in traction. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But I'll take Wentz if I got to pick. There you go. Okay, thank you very much, Goose. <laughs> yeah, if Wentz had played 16 games last year, he probably would have the NFL MVP. You know, we've seen five games now from Mahomes. At this point, give me Wentz. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I, I talked about them being an undefeated team, meaning the Chiefs. Uh, there's another one. That's the Rams. And if we were doing this segment a week ago, all you'd hear about would be Jared Goff because he looked like Mahomes with that touchdown performance, uh, touchdown uh barrage against Minnesota. So there's a raft of good young quarterbacks taking advantage of a game that's producing yards, points, and records. But speaking of records, guys, I want to mention Drew Brees. He's not one of the young quarterbacks, but one of the best out there, period. And he should break Peyton Manning's career yardage record this week with 201 yards passing, which, by the way, things are going right now. I would think, Ron, that'd be somewhere in the first or second quarter. Well, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, yes, there's records are being broken, but are they legitimate records? You know, they aren't even playing the same game as all the great quarterbacks of the past have played. Uh, uh, and let me not forget to remind you, uh, Ryan Fitzmatrick, the Amish rifle, has thrown over three, <laughs> 400 yards three times, as we mentioned. He couldn't do that at Harvard. <laughs> so what are we talking about here? I mean, these numbers are a joke. They really are. Out there, what we're talking about. Talk about state your case. I mean, no quarterback, I don't care if it's Patrick McHolmes or Pat Sullivan, remember him? Whew, he was pretty good. <laughs> I do. We'd want to see Cornelius Bennett in his grill, but he's the guy that our Ron Borges took on this week. When he wrote about him on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, making a Hall of Fame case for the former linebacker. Ron, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Well, Clark, Cornelius Bennett made a big impact everywhere he went during his 14-year NFL career, but it all started in the place where he refused to go. The two-time AFC Defensive Player of the Year was the second player drafted in 1987, but had no interest in playing for the consistently losing Colts. So, for the only time in what many feel may have been a Hall of Fame career, he didn't show up. And what that decision led to was a blockbuster midseason trade that is still considered one of the biggest in NFL history. The Colts traded the rights to Bennett to the Buffalo Bills for the Bills' number one pick in 88, the number one pick in 89, the number two pick in 88, and running back Greg Bell. The Colts then traded that entire package, plus their own first and second round picks in 88, their second round pick in 89, and running back Owen Gill to the Los Angeles Rams for future Hall of Famer Eric Dickerson. All those picks later became Gaston Green, Aaron Cox, Fred Strickland, Cleveland Gary, Frank Stamps, and Daryl Henley. The only one to play in a single Pro Bowl was Green, but he did it for the Broncos, not the Rams. Dickerson soon also faded away, but Cornelius Bennett fulfilled all his vast potential. In 14 years, he started for teams that won eight division titles and five conference championships, but he did go 0-5 in the Super Bowl, leaving the five-time Pro Bowler perhaps one ring short of the Hall. He started 204 of the 206 games in which he played, amassing seven interceptions, 31 forced fumbles, 27 fumble recoveries, 71 and a half sacks, and 1,190 tackles. Upon his retirement at the end of the 2000 season, those 27 fumble recoveries ranked him third all-time among defensive players, behind Jim Marshall and Ricky Jackson. 18 years later, he's still fourth. Bennett was a disruptive outside linebacker who could rush the passer, cover a receiver or running back, and hold the edge like a cement wall. He was a playmaker. He's a guy that Marv Levy said creates havoc. His impact was evident right from the start in the strike short in 1987 season. The Bills were giving up 30 points a game in per, per, uh, pre-9-11 
nine straight games until Bennett showed up. Eight games later, it was down to 15. A year later, in his second uh, season, he had 103 tackles, nine and a half sacks, intercepted two passes, forced three fumbles, and recovered all three from his left outside linebacker position. His numbers stack up well with just about any Hall of Fame linebacker you can think of. Does he deserve a, a, a spot in Canton? We don't know, but he certainly deserves to be there for the debate. Sounds like you love you some biscuit there, Ron. I love biscuit. Yeah, well, a lot of talk about food today. We've got biscuit, Brian's ribs. Hey, guys, let's take a break. Get something to eat. You're listening <laughs> to the Talk talk of Food. I'm, I'm sorry, the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you no doubt gathered from the previous segment, there's a lot of interest, including here in Kansas City's Patrick Mahomes. So we thought we'd take advantage of that by reaching out to someone who is in Denver Monday and who knows Patrick intimately. And that would be none other than his agent, the agent to the stars in a longtime friend friend of ours, Lee Steinberg, who joins us by phone from L.A. Lee, always, always good to hear from you. Thank you. You know, the four of us go back to when woolly uh, mammoths and saber-toothed tigers uh, roamed the earth. <laughs> exactly. When they folded the helmet up and put it in their back pocket. You remember those days? It was made out of paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Lee, um, who would have thought? I mean, you know, when you gained Patrick as a client, could you have ever imagined that in the second year, this is what you were getting? Um, absolutely not. This is supposed to be a learning year for him. This is supposed to be the year where he lines up over guard instead of center, where he throws uh, bad interceptions and where he calls timeout at inappropriate times. This is. There's no way a young quarterback can actually see the field with the clarity an older quarterback does. The game's just too fast. So um, this was supposed to be a learning year where each game he would progressively get better. And I spent the entire offseason spinning down saying, be patient with Patrick, be patient. You know, this is just a growth experience. If you want a full-fledged franchise quarterback, you've got to give it some time. Well, you know, somehow the secret's out. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned this is supposed to be the year to be lining up behind guard, not center. I was in San Diego in Elway's first year when he lined up behind guard and they had to move more. I said, no, John, move over here. Okay. Um, um, but it's funny when you talk about all that that he's, that he's picked up in such a short period of time. How do you explain that? Uh, first of all, you have to look at his background. So he's raised uh, by a father who pitches 10 years in the major leagues. His godfather is LaTroy Hawkins, who pitched for 20 years in the majors. So he grew up at spring training with A-Rod and Derek Jeter, and he's always understood what it takes to be a professional athlete and also the temperament where you don't get too high or too low, and also uh, an essential humility where there's an understanding that you're only standing there because the offensive line is blocking and the uh, they've drawn up good plays. And he has all that. He has what is critical in a franchise quarterback, which is the ability in adversity where you've thrown a couple picks, everything is going wrong, the crowd is booing, the uh, center's looking at the quarterback like he's on hallucinations, and what does he do now? So you saw it last 
last night, which is can he compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, uh, focus, and then elevate his play in critical situations to take a team along. And um, he had the great benefit of sitting behind Alex Smith, who was very gracious to him and was a good mentor. Um, he also has Andy Reid, who's a noted quarterback whisperer, and uh, and some really good offensive tools. So and we were so delighted when he got drafted by Kansas City because you've got Clark Hunt there, and it's been stable ownership forever. They've got a very canny front office with Brett Beach and a really gifted coach. So um, essentially, and he's what's really good about him is he's a better human being than he is a football player. He's uh, humble and gracious. He's always nice. He wants to be a role model. So, um, and I'm sure his teammates uh, pick that up. But I have seen him do things with football. And, you know, I've represented over 130 quarterbacks that I've never seen a quarterback do before. Um, you know, in the first game, he threw a no-look pass for a touchdown. Um, last night, he threw with his left hand. Uh, when he was in pro scouting day, he stood on the 25-yard line and threw it through the other end zone. I mean, he has freakish ability to throw the ball. Go ahead, Goose. Lee, have you heard of many Kansas City bar- uh, barbecue establishments about endorsement opportunities? <laughs> your phone's got to be ringing off the hook. So we did a whole series of endorsements. He's actually made over $3 million, but none of them were with firms that were national where there would be billboards all across Kansas City where his face would be on the airwaves because that would raise the level of expectations and pressure on him. And then the first time he throws an interception, it's like, uh, you know, who is this guy? So I'm doing the same thing that we did with Troy Aikman and Steve Young and Warren Moon and a lot of other quarterbacks, which is to try to hold that off until he has a chance to establish himself on the field, prove to his uh, uh, coaches and his teammates that uh, he's serious about football and and uh, not the rest of it. And he signed a big contract, so um, you know he started with a large signing bonus. Um, one other quality he has is I think it's called an adaptive memory, but he can remember fundamentally every single play that he's ever played, and he can remember in order. Uh, what happened with each of those plays. So his uh, memory and grasp of the game uh, is is sponge-like in that all he wants to do is get better. So um, he's, you know, he sits there with Andy Reid and, and uh, they spend an hour and a half on Friday going over what plays they think will work. So he's, um, you know, got all the enthusiasm and excitement that, uh, that, that you have with young players. So, Lee, this is all new to him, but it isn't to you. You've been down this road before with numerous high-profile quarterbacks and players. What's the greatest danger right now? Um, again, the, the expectations get so high that with these young quarterbacks, they're judged to be a bust somehow because they're going through the learning process. And we've seen this happen over and over and over again. I go back to 1999, and the first pick in that draft was Tim Couch. He should be a 
at the end of his career, a big star, uh, never really made it. Akili Smith was the third pick. Uh, he never really made it either. Neither did Cade McNown. They can't all have been bad draft picks. Um, so the biggest danger is always that the hype gets too high, that the uh, and it becomes uh, absolutely unsustainable. But he's in a zone, and when the fans were booing last night, I asked him, I said, have you ever heard it louder? He said it actually was louder than Kansas City. Um, but he's in a zone where he's tuning all that out. I mean, he expects to be here. He chose football over baseball. And, um, you know, they've got another tough... Each week's been a different challenge. You know, you're not supposed to be able to go into San Diego, beat the Chargers, and you're not supposed to be able to go into Pittsburgh with their defense and beat them. Uh, can you sustain it against San Francisco? And then last night, that crowd was... Uh, the whole stadium was rocking. I mean, you, you couldn't hear a thing. And, uh, uh, and, and it wasn't so smooth the first half. And uh, things weren't totally clicking, but he made some throws, and if you look at his fourth quarter statistics, um, you know, when he needed to, he pulled it together, but, you know, it's a tough season. Their defense is is probably not as good as their offense, and um, in some ways, he may end up having to do what he did at Texas Tech, which is to score a bundle of points to win games. <laughs> Uh, Lee, how important, uh, important do you think it was that he got to sit last year and, and, and watch for that whole season? You talked about Alex being a good mentor, but uh, how important do you think that was to just not have that pressure of having to play? Right up? Really important. Um, and uh, by being able to sit there and watch how a veteran goes about his week, how he prepares to sit there and have time to deal with the playbook to watch what works, what didn't work, and then to have a start at the end of the year. Um, if I had my choice with uh, quarterbacks, that's how I'd have them start. Because if you look at the, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers of the world uh, and and other players, they Carson Palmer, they did just fine with that. And um, so the right time, in some ways, to draft the franchise quarterback is before you need him to start. And uh, give him some breeding so you know he can go along and and i think that's what they'll be faced with uh, at the new york giants and the saints and the chargers you know over time um can you put the person into play and, and go into tutelage and uh, i was very happy that they carried out the plan they did uh is there anything comparable in your experience uh uh as a player who can, you know, compare to what he's done. I mean, he's on track to break Manning's 55 touchdown record. I mean, you had Bledsoe and Young and Moon and Aikman, all those guys. Uh, but did any of them or anybody? Oh, no, 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 no. Ron, none of them played this way at uh, the start of their careers. Uh, Troy was joking on the air the other night that he had a, a game for Dallas this rookie year where he had a three quarterback <laughs> rating. <laughs> um, and so, no, I mean, look, if, if you look at who we consider great quarterbacks, Peyton Manning had more interceptions. Uh, John Elway had more interceptions and they did touchdown passes. They, they all struggled. Steve Young, you know, was playing running back for the Express in an equivalent <laughs> situation. Um, it 
um, uh, you know, Warren Moon was in Canada for six uh, years, and Troy, you know, they had a, that wonderful rookie season where they went, uh, you know, they won one game. So uh, this is sort of amazing. It's a testimony to how fast Patrick can learn, how good the uh, tools are around him, how great a coach uh, Andy Reid is, and you know, there'll be bumps somewhere along this road. Lee, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, grab the reins and hold on tight because i got a feeling you're going to be a busy, busy man the rest of the year. <laughs> well, we did get a call uh, the other day from a, a cereal company that uh, wanted to do like a Patrick Flakes, and uh, I told them, hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lee, thanks again. Really appreciate oh, it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Lee. You got Good it. Talking to you. That was Lee Steinberg, the agent of Patrick Holmes. Up next, it's Hall of Fame candidate Troy Vincent. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Troy Vincent is a name you hear a lot of now, but not because he's a star player. But he was once a cornerback who was so accomplished in his 15 years in the NFL that he's one of the 102 candidates on the Pro Football Hall of Fame's preliminary list for the class of 2019. But Troy has moved on, and he's moved on to become the league's executive vice president of football operations. And now, more importantly, he moved on to be a guest with us. So, Troy, thanks so much for joining us. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to the discussion, and what a better week than last week. Uh, And last week was a good week, but I think we resolved some things here on Rough in the Pasture, so I'm happy to be on the phone with you this week. Good, good. We're going to get to that, but first of all, I I know you're no stranger to Halls of Fame. I mean, you're in the Eagles Hall, you're in the Sports Hall of Fame for the state of Pennsylvania, for the University of Wisconsin, which is your collegiate alma mater, and for Pensbury High School, your high school alma mater in Pensbury, PA. So, which is the most meaningful to you? Well, they all are. They all are. And for a young, for a young man who only played one year of high school football, having the opportunity to, to earn a scholarship and and participate at the University of Wisconsin and play some decent ball here at the pro level, um, they all were significant and had significant time and place in my life. And I wouldn't say one ranks. Um, any more important than the other. I'm just so thankful. Um, growing up, I never thought that I would uh, be an accomplished football player. I thought I was going to be the next Julius Irving, um, Andrew Tony. growing up in the Philadelphia area. I wanted to be a Philadelphia 76er, end up being an Eagle. Well, then I will ask you about um, <laughs> another career, and that's off the field. And a similar question. You've been decorated for a lot of work off the field, and it is considerable. I mean, you won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, the Wizard White Man of the Year Award, the Bart Starr Man of the Year Award, the All-Pro Dad Award, which, by the way, is given by a good friend of ours, Tony Dungy, the Ebony Magazine's Ebony Pathfinder Award, the John Wooden Executive Leadership Award, the Jim Mandridge Courage and Commitment Award, just goes on and on and on, and they're just far, far too many to name. Did you have to build an addition to your home to house all those awards? And is there one that's most meaningful there? Well... No, and obviously the work that my wife, Tommy, and I do with our children, you know, frankly, Clark, we just we just want to live a life of service. And those the, the awards and the accolades and being recognized, those are byproducts. Um, the real heroes are the people in the community who can't, frankly, who can't fight for themselves. And we always ask ourselves, my wife and I, you know, what can we do today to make somebody else's life better? 
And that's been our, you know, frankly, since I left high school and went on to college, that's really been the purpose of every day, waking up with a purpose, just trying to make a difference. And all the other things just come along with it. But we just want to be make a difference in society and trying to pass along those same legacies and values to our children, our five children. And that's really what it's about. It's really about a life of service. And the game allows me to continue to do that at a, at a, at a high level uh, with, with, frankly, massive reach. Troy Clark mentioned the, the Wooten Executive Leadership Award, and you are an executive, one of the highest-ranking execs in the NFL. But you're also president of the NFLPA, who once had designs on the executive director's job there. In an era where the two sides are so often in conflict, how difficult is it to go from one side to the other? Well, it, it wasn't difficult at all. And to me, it was always it was about the game. And... I never was an employee of the PA. I served as an officer and served proudly in, an, in, an, in a time where locker room leadership was needed, labor leadership is always needed. And so I never looked at it as picking sides. It was just always, how do you contribute to the game? And as a player, you know, you're, you're an employee of the club and you get voted in as, a, as an officer. And uh, I love serving. It was an extension of the service that happened in the community, but you know I think that was Rick. It was you that answered. But it was it, I never. It was never picking of a side. It was always what's about what's in best interest of the game. That includes the player, the fan, and the owner, who's who's putting the venue on so that we can we can make this game great. So to me, it was never picking of a side, um, and I still have an opportunity to contribute to the game that I love. Okay, the New York Times, Mark Leibovich, wrote a best-selling book called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times, where he described you as, quote, the guy who thinks he's going to be the next commissioner. Is he wrong? Now, I met... Would that be something <laughs> wow. that interests you? <laughs> well, well, I would say I met Mark years ago, um, and I haven't read his book, but I take life a day at a time, just like I did on the field, and... Uh, my wife and I, we focus on what's in front of us. I don't think about, frankly, tomorrow. Today, I I served the commissioner of the National Football League. That's Roger Cadell. And that's the focus every day, not looking in the future. But again, I haven't, I haven't read Mark's book. Uh, met him a few years back. And today, it's about today. Well, let's speak about today, then. Uh, Troy, you're involved with the competition committee, uh, and they've kind of been in the crosshairs of just about everybody over that roughing the passer rule that you uh, brought up a few minutes ago. In fact, we had Mike Pereira on last week, the former head of officials, uh, telling us that the way it was being called the first three weeks was changing the game uh, in a bad way. Uh, So you had a conference call last week, and then you issued a text saying uh, ostensibly that nothing would change, but then it did. You know, there were dramatically fewer calls last week, 15 as opposed to an average of 11 the first three weeks. And I know you said the officials were not specifically instructed uh, that they were told to see the whole play. So, so what it changed? If you could explain to our listeners, I, I, I would say when we had the call, and as I facilitated the call, it was let's we took them back to where do we start in February and March on all the points of emphasis. That's roughing the passer. That's use of helmet. That's defenseless player. ICT. And we began going back through the videos that we all agreed on, the committee and the head coaches. And then we went through the number of fouls, I think at the time was 34. We had 34 fouls going into, I think it was week three at the time. And we went through each one of those clips, each one of those fouls, the correct calls. And then we asked a question. 
you want this call? Is this what we want called? Are we officiating to the point that we made in February, March, and April, and May? And the discussion really centered around we want to make that 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 foul there that call. Did the official, did the referee who's calling it, did he see the entire play? And that theme over the two hours was it was a common theme. Please see the whole play. At the end of, at the end of, on the fall, did the player let up? Did he release? Did he actually really drive his, his in full body weight into the ground? So after real healthy discussion, we just walked away with one, no change of rule of language. Uh, two, want to make sure that the officials and their mechanics to revisit the officiating and their mechanics. And then, uh, frankly, I think really the most, the coaching points that we saw from week three to week four on what's expected, and then the players adjusted. And the, videos is, the video is screaming this out. When you watch the video in week four, really week three to week four, you saw coaching points and players making an assertive effort. So I think it was a really a combination of the three on why we saw the difference from 34 fouls, 39, I think, if I'm not mistaken, after four weeks, there were five fouls called. Okay, if the refs were instructed, see the entire play. Speaking of another play, which is a pet peeve of mine, is this is lowering the helmet uh, call. Uh, I know you refined the rules to a great extent, but it was called 50 times in the first two weeks of preseason. It was called once each in the first two weeks of the regular season. It was not called at a Patriot game uh, I was at in which the offensive player, um, Philip Dorsett, lowered his head and nailed a cornerback from Houston who got a concussion that hasn't played, didn't play for two weeks. No flag. Um, is there a portion of that rule that says offensive players can do unto others what you cannot do unto them? Because uh, just, no, I just, I just don't see these offensive guys getting flagged for lowering their hat. And, and that the that use of helmet that's a universal rule, so that applies to everyone on the field. And we we we've actually tagged and we've shown video. There's been calls of offensive players um, that are lowering that head to initiate contact. We've seen that foul call both ways. Again, it's a subjective call. When we had the the, the conversation with the competition committee, I think that was week two or week three in preseason you know what's you know what's incidental what's inadvertent contact with the helmet because it's a contact sport and talking through that we were able to distinguish what's incidental what's inadvertent contact and if it's just incidental contact hold that foul we'll review that video john and i and the team the day after um, whether that's a warning letter or the appropriate accountability measures will be taken. But sometimes we miss those, and but we try to pick those up. If we miss them on Sunday or Monday or Thursday, we're picking it up on Monday and Tuesday in our film review. One quick follow-up to that. Uh, as a guy who was a longtime friend of Lester Hayes, he can't even recognize the game the way it's played today. You played at a different time when it certainly was a different game. Can you recognize this game from the game that you were involved in most of your career? So I get asked that question, and most is interesting because most most of the pushback comes from the former player, and this is what I tell them. Most of my colleagues, you know, Brian is one, you know, Hugh Douglas, and you know, Lawyer Malloy and Takeo Spikes, and 
London Fletcher was, you know, hitting me up on Sunday during the game, saying, "Man, show me a clip of a of a backer coming right down the middle who, who's hitting the quarterback to right." You know, so you have to pause and you say, "Because we know better today, gentlemen." And I always say, just just take a step back and just listen. It's a different time in a different era. The game isn't softer. But men, the one thing that I think about on a daily basis personally and the staff is your quality of life. And these are necessary rule changes. The helmet should never be used as a weapon. And as Willie Lanier says this all the time to our Player Health and Safety Committee as he comes in and he's he's advising us, this should this is a professional sport. It's not a blood sport. You can't make it a blood sport. There's a care that you have to have for your opponent. Yeah, you want to be physical. That doesn't take away the physicality of the game. And I just believe these are necessary changes that we have to make for the overall well-being of the game. Um, and just knowing what I know now, I grew up in an era where I was taught to bite the ball. I was taught to just do things that no one told me wasn't right, but I know better today. And as a gatekeeper with two sons playing ball, two, two, two young boys that are student athletes, I want all kids and all parents to feel like this game is good for their children. That um, how do we protect players from unnecessary risk? So some of these, the, the changes in use of helmet, uh, the defenseless player, um, as we look at roughing the passer, all of these things are, are, are really in the best interest, we believe, of the long-term well-being of the game. Hey, Troy, we've got about 45 seconds left, but isn't there a danger that we're legislating defense out of the game? I understand, I understand I say, those concerns, mm-hmm. but isn't there? I understand your concerns, but isn't there a danger you're legislating it out of the game? Well, I think that's what we have to be careful. I think there's a fine balance. But guess what? The fans want to see points scored. They don't want to see people harmed. They don't want to see people taken off in stretchers where we used to celebrate those things. I think, to your point, there's a fine balance in trying to find that right balance. We need both fan input, your input, player input, and then what does the data in the video tell us? And just trying to find that, strike that right balance. Troy, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. Best of luck. No, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, gentlemen. Best of luck with your candidacy, your season, and those angry Clay Matthews fans. Good luck with that. (laughs) 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 Thanks, Troy. Thanks, Troy. That's all candidate Troy Vincent. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Not much time left, so you know what's next. That's the two-minute warning. Yep, it's the two-minute drill, and I have it this week, so guys, let's get started. Who has the worst defense? The Chiefs, the Saints, or Facebook? Facebook. I can see every Sunday how the Chiefs and Saints go about their business. Facebook operates behind closed doors. <laughs> um, Brett Kavanaugh, the I went to Yale, you know, defense. I don't get it. <laughs> Complete the sentence. Patrick Mahomes is the best thing to hit Kansas City since? George Brett. Ooh, Len Dawson. Oh. A Star is Born is a movie about A, Patrick Mahomes, B, Calvin Ridley, C, Saquon Barkley, or D, the Talk of Fame Network. Ridley, you're not supposed to catch six touchdown passes in a Julio Jones offense. Uh, Talk of Fame Network would be two stars are born and one is in Nova, Clark. So I would say <laughs> Patrick Mahomes for the moment. <laughs> now that you see seen all rookie quarterbacks, who's your first draft pick? Josh Allen. He can survive until Buffalo gets some blockers, by the way. 
I agree with the Goose Man. I still like his talent. If he's okay. not a dead man. <laughs> see if you agree with the Goose Man on this. Now that you've seen all new head coaches, who's your first hire? Mike Rabel. Eagles and Jaguars in the NFL's Final Four last season. Rabel's Titans have beaten them both in the last two weeks. Frank Reich. I like a guy who goes for it, bets on his best player, and when he goes bust, says, I'll go do it again. <laughs> Five quarterbacks passed for 400 yards last week. What does that tell you about the NFL? It tells me Norm Van Brocklin's single-game passing record is in jeopardy. <laughs> right. It tells me they're not playing football anymore, Toto. <laughs> The Blue Jays' John Gibbons let catcher Russell Martin manage the last game of the season. Which NFL player would you let coach your game? Drew Brees. <laughs> Richard Sherman. Can you imagine? Ugh. <laughs> the Steelers are actively shopping Le'Veon Bell. What would you get for him? He's a rental. A fifth-round draft pick. If I was New England, I'd give a lot. That way they don't have to blow all their picks in April like they usually do. Who was Earl Thomas saluting when he card was carted off the field last Sunday? I'm guessing Le'Veon Bell, who, unlike Thomas, still has a market value. <laughs> I think it was Pistol Pete Carroll. Thanks for the memories and half a peace sign to you. <laughs> Chicago Bears, Cal Bears, or Hershey Bears? Yogi Bear. Oh, good one. But you can't beat Strawberry Canyon in the fall. Cal Bears. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. You're right, Ron. Because in the second hour, we have Hall of Fame voter Paul Domowicz and best-selling author Ian O'Connor, whose book on Bill Belichick is in a store near you. That and plenty more in the second half of the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, like the Patriots' Julian Edelman, we are back. Yes, sir, this is the Talk of Fame Network, your center for all things Hall of Fame, and this is our number two. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and in these 60 minutes, we're going to hear from author Ian O'Connor, whose book, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach, hit stores this week, or hit it last week, I guess, Hall of Fame voter Paul Domowicz from the Philly Daily News, and Julian Edelman's Boswell. That would be our Mr. Ron Borges with his Borges or Bogus Screed. But first, guys, let's recognize someone who's on a track that couldn't, I dare say, should land him in Canton, and that's Adam Vinatieri, now the NFL's all-time record holder for field goals, with a career total of 567, breaking Hall of Fame, Hall of Famer, uh, Morton Anderson's previous record of 565. Now, Goose, you're our special teams expert. you got to like Vinatieri's chances of making it to Canton, right? Even though he's playing, you got to like him, right? Well, we all know how the Hall of Fame feels about kicking specialists. I predict Vinatieri will be the last kicker this committee ever enshrines. <laughs> wow. Ron, yeah, that's, that's, that's... Just that you, sounds like you, a bad movie, The Last Kicker. It does sound like The Last Kicker. You covered The Last Kicker in New England. Um, anything you see that could keep him from getting enshrined? Well, like Goose is only the intransigence of some of the voters who feel kickers and special team players don't exist. Uh, look, he'll end up as the all-time leading scorer. He'll have more field goals than anyone in history. But most importantly, he's made the most memorable field goals. I mean, yeah. the game-tying and the game-winning ones that beat the Raiders in a driving snowstorm. Two from 48 and 41 yards with uh, no time left in one case and four seconds the other to win Super Bowls. He's kicked in five Super Bowls and won four. And he's the only kicker to score 1,000 points for two different teams. That should do it. Okay, guys, let's cut to the chase. Morton Anderson or Adam Vinatieri? Goose? No, one went to Michigan State, one didn't. That's an easy choice. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. As, there as he usual, is, your Hall of Fame expert. Well, as usual, Goose is half right. It's an easy choice. Automatic Adam. Hey, one more question, guys. Who retires first, Adam Vinatieri, Tom Brady, or our Rick Goslin? The goose will roll long after those guys are sitting around the pool saying, my knee hurts. I hope to be doing this for three more years. I don't think I'll be talking about Brady or Vinatieri in three more years. Or us. Well, Well, we're going to retire right now. In fact, we're going to retire and go to break. When we return, we'll celebrate the good, the bad, and the Kansas City Chiefs from the first quarter of this season. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, yes, as you just heard, we are the Talk of Fame Network, but I wonder for how long, guys. I'll tell you why, because did you see that Dunkin' Donuts is no longer Dunkin' Donuts? You guys, Ron, you see them up here in the Northeast, huh? They're changing their name to Dunkin'. I mean, what's up? What's up with that? And that's the world we live in. Change for the for the sake of change, because people seem yeah. you know fixated on the new. Let me tell you something. If they actually pull the donuts out of Dunkin', there'll be no. <laughs> just like if they pull up pancakes out of IHOP, there will be no IHOP <laughs> well, or Dunkin'. There'll be no business. Well, I mean, since you mentioned IHOP, yeah, you're right. They changed IHOP for a promo. They IHOP saying the B was for burgers. Yeah, when I want burger, I'm going to IHOP. Sure, uh huh. <laughs> and then Weight Watchers. I mean, Weight Watchers changed his name to WW. <laughs> Goose, I always thought WB yeah, what is that? for World War. I thought that stood for World War. What is up with that? What's going on here? Let me just say this. I love me some Dunkin' Donuts. If you're, if you're catering to the media crowd, you're better off changing your name to Donuts, not Dunkin'. Really? Or free, or, or free donuts that every media member is there. Uh, so, guys, if we're going to change our name, Goose, what should it be? Well, for obvious reasons, the talk of Brady Network. <laughs> Wait a minute. It already is, isn't it? <laughs> but you, Ron. <laughs> um, well, uh, that's a good question. Um uh, Welcome to Fame Network. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just. It's, oh, you know what? Just I like old right school, there. man. <laughs> since, you, since you stopped there, I'm going to stick with senior moments. There's yeah, ours. There it, makes no, it makes no difference. Anyway, this isn't a secret society, but it could be a senior society, which actually, guys, is a good thing because with all that experience comes knowledge. And as Faber College's Dean Wormer once reminded us, knowledge is good. <laughs> With that in mind, I'm going to tap into your knowledge and see what you make of this league after four games. Granted, it's not a large sample size, but hey, we've already crowned Patrick Mahomes a uh, Hall of Famer based on four games. So it is something, and it's something for us to acknowledge, which we will right here and right now. So let's get started, guys. First up, biggest surprise. And this can be either player or team. Biggest surprise, Goose. This is repetitious. Patrick Mahomes, hand down, hands down. You know, besides Andy Reid, who saw this coming? Now we know why Reid traded into the top ten in 2017 to draft Mahomes, even though he had no intention of playing him as a rookie. Who saw this coming? Certainly not the guy who told me to take Leonard Fournette, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, biggest surprise, uh, Josh Gordon has yet to test positive uh, in his <laughs> one week in New England. <laughs> That's stunning. <laughs> Stunning. Biggest disappointment. Rob. You hit you hit it, my man Fournette. I built my entire fantasy team around this guy and he's limping around like peg leg Pete. You're dead. Goose. I'll say the the Minnesota defense. The Vikings love the fewest points in yards in the NFL last season. This defense carried them to the title game. 
Now they're like a Pez dispenser, freely spitting out yards and points as many as they want. Pez dispenser. Like I said, we're at the senior fantasy football league. Hey, league v- MVP. Gooseman, who you have the league MVP? Patrick Mahomes. Chiefs, Chiefs are 4-0 with three road victories. They won in Pittsburgh, won in Denver, two tough places. He's thrown 11 touchdowns and no picks on the road. Uh, that's pretty Rod. good. But uh, for me... Earl Thomas, who has made a bigger statement this season than him? (laughs) (laughs) We're number one. Offensive player of the year. Ron, offensive player of the year. Mahomes, 14 touchdown passes in four games. Four games is not a season make. Uh, Everybody forgets that, but so far so good. So very good. Mahomes, ditto. Goose, just hand in your machine. Mahomes, Mahomes, Mahomes. MVP, (laughs) MVP, offensive player of the year. Defensive player of the year. Goose, you cannot say Mahomes. That's an easy one. Khalil Mack. Suddenly the Bears are consequential in the NFC North, and his ferocious pass rush is the reason. Exactly right. Five sacks, a pick, a touchdown. What was John Gruden looking at when he was looking? All that tape we saw him look on TV apparently went blind when he got the whole. (laughs) (laughs) Offensive rookie of the year, Ron. Riddle me this. Calvin, four TD catches in four games, 210 receiving yards. That pays the bills, and it pays back the Falcons for taking him. Thank you, Batman. Goose? I agree. Really. He didn't catch a pass in his NFL debut. Three games later, he leads all NFL receivers with six TDs. And he doesn't even start for the Falcons. Defensive Rookie of the Year. Colts middle linebacker Darius Leonard, 13 tackles in his debut. After a month, he leads the NFL in tackles with 54 and all rookies in sacks with four. Not bad for a second-round pick out of South Carolina State. Harry Carson School. God, Clark, if Congress is as agreeable as Gooseman and myself, a lot of things will be getting done in Washington. Darius Leonard, he's the leading rookie tackler. Uh, I mean, look, he's, he's, he's made the... Leading tackler, period. Rookie yeah, he's the leading tackler, period. Rookie or old man. Just think he'll do better than that. Cover your answers, Goose. Ditto. He's looking over your shoulder. Ditto. Coach of the year. Andy Reid, he took a gamble on Mahomes and he's 4-0. and Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> this is boring. We know Ditto on this one. agree. We will not agree in this next one. We will not. Assistant coach of the year, Goose. Ravens offensive coordinator Marty Morningway. He's resurrected Ooh. the career of Joe Flacco and the Super Bowl aspirations of the Ravens. Marty Ball. Ron? Patriots running back coach Ivan Fears. He hadn't done anything, but he's lasted 22 <laughs> years on the Patriots' <laughs> sidelines. He must be doing something right. <laughs> Most memorable moment. That might have been it. Most memorable moment. <laughs> I already mentioned it. Earl Thomas's one-finger salutation <laughs> toward his own teammates. Unbelievable. When the Bud Light folks unlocked the free beer can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, first game in two seasons. And lastly, most forgettable moment. Pick a flag, any flag. There were 856 penalties assessed in September for 7,700 yards. That's 770 football fields walked off by the ref. Start picking up all those flags thrown for roughing the passer. Tampa's decision to sit down the Amish rifle for Jameis Winston. What a mistake. (laughs) Well, that's the signal for a guy that we never forget. That's the memorable Ron Borges. Here with this gorgeous or bogus segment. Did I say screed earlier? Yes, yeah, screed. So, Goose, let's ask Ron. What's on your mind, Ronnie? Huh? Where are you going? Le'Veon Bell understands he's already outrushed the NFL's running back 
actuarial table, so he's not taking any more chances with his body than he has to. And who can blame him? Some of his teammates, for one. Many of them think it's bogus that Bell continues to re- refuse to come to work because he can't convince the Steelers' management to pay him what he's worth. They seem to think Bell was going to sit out the summer and then return to the, take a relentless pounding again this year, like he has the past five years. But he won't do it, frankly, because he they can read actuarial tables in Pittsburgh and he can read them wherever the hell he is. What they tell the Steelers is it would be bogus business to guarantee Bell money now that he's been pounded over 1,500 times since arriving in Pittsburgh in 2013. All his teammates want is the return of one of the best backs in football to their staggering offense. All Le'Veon Bell wants is a lifetime financial insurance policy to return to that role. And all the team wants is to have it both ways. They want the promise of Bell, but they don't want to make him any promises. So Bell sits as the Steelers and James Conner, Bell's replacement, sink. Conner opened the season with 135 rushing yards, and there was people saying, ha-ha, see that? We don't need you. Since then, James Conner has twice rushed for less than 20 yards and amassed 97 total yards, averaging 32.33 yards rushing a game. Le'Veon Bell gains that before he breaks a sweat. Bill said, Bell said this week he plans to return and sign the franchise tag at the best of times for him. He'll do it during Pittsburgh's bye week, which makes me laugh, meaning the Steelers will have to pay him $855,000, even though he's still not working. I love this guy. That's called Earl Thomasing your team. <laughs> Bill has averaged over 300 touches a season in his five-year career, and that workload has only been increasing. The past two, he handled the ball an average of 370 times, and last year the load increased to 406. To continue to take that pounding for a team refusing to pledge any long-time loyalty to him would be, in his estimation, bogus. I agree. Who can argue with him? Not me. And if they're realists, not his teammates either. When they look at that one-two-on-one record of theirs, they should uh, look at Bell's empty locker and then look at poor James Conner and remember one word. This whole thing is bogus. That's four words. Ron, what would you do if the Talk of Fame Network slapped a franchise tag on you? <laughs> For $855,000 a show, I would chirp like a birdie. <laughs> I'd be working, brother. <laughs> well, that's not bogus, but uh, this isn't either. we got to go to commercial, guys. When we return, we're going to hear from Hall of Fame voter Paul Domowicz on the best Eagles not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hall of Fame voter Paul Domowicz has worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philly Daily News for 36 years. Most of them, yeah, most of them in the midst of the Philadelphia Eagles' nest. So he's seen the Eagles' ups and downs, and of course, last season, witnessed their greatest triumph, beating the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 52 with a backup quarterback. The Eagles have a long history in the NFL, as everyone knows, so we're calling on Damo today to enlighten us on all those players or coaches he believes have been unfairly forgotten by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Damo, welcome back. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Clark. Nice to be here. Uh, Damo, if, if I gave you a magic wand and you could put one Eagle into the Hall of Fame, uh, is there one guy that immediately pops into your mind? Well, if it's a guy that I have no power over, which is a senior committee guy, it probably would be Harold Carmichael. And why is that? Well, because I, I mean, I, I think he was—I I think he had, you know, his numbers during a uh, d- during the era he played. I think are Hall of Fame worthy. I, I think he got 
uh, ignored mainly because he just played on some awful teams until he, Dick Vermeil finally got there, and he, he had a chance to go to the uh, uh, Super Bowl in 1980 with with that team. But before that, I mean, you know, I mean, you remember and know how god awful the uh, Eagles were in the 70s uh, for most of uh, Harold's career. But I mean, you know, the size he brought to that position, you know, one of the first real big guys to play, uh, you know, to be that guy that could get 50-50 balls. Uh, you know, his numbers are, you know, I was a, a little upset a couple, I guess it was last year, whenever uh, Drew Pearson started getting some attention and mentioned as a Hall of Fame guy. Uh, you know, I mean, in my mind, that's no contest. That's that's Harold Carmichael. The only difference is Drew played on winning teams and Harold had the misfortune for playing on poor teams. Double Harold Carmichael or Terrell Owens? <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, again, no contest. I mean, Terrell Owens is one of the greatest receivers, uh, you know, in football history. But, I mean, there are different tiers of, of players that are in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I think Harold's Hall of Fame worthy. But, uh, I mean, that's one of the dilemmas we face, Goose, with, you know, uh, Eras when the pass was, uh, you know, guys were throwing 20 times a game, and and now when it, we think nothing of a guy throwing 50 times a game, so you know, that's something we have to judge and, and take into account uh, when we look at each player. Okay, let me take you back to the 40s. Eagles had a couple of guys: Al Wistert, Bucko Kilroy, all decade mm-hmm. enshrined. Wistert only four-time All-Pro from that decade, not in the Hall. Kilroy has a great resume as a contributor. What's the reason they're not in? Not even been discussed. Yeah, uh, you know, Wister was a guy that, you know, I, I talked to Joe Horrigan about him uh, for several years, and was told at one point that basically we've moved on from that era. So uh, I said, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, they felt they had picked enough of those guys from the. I mean, you know, Al was one of those guys who played when the war was going on. Um, you know, I mean, a Hall of Fame worthy in my mind, but uh, when Joe Horgan tells you they've moved on, uh, I figured that wasn't a fight worth fighting anymore. <laughs> yeah, but Joe doesn't have a vote. I mean, the thing is, the senior committee could, could push him in. And in terms of Bucko, I mean, Goose and I are both on the uh, contributor committee. He, he's mm-hmm. got a real shot. He's got a real shot there um, because of all those things that... that Goose has talked my player. He's a coach. He's a scout. A long-time successful NFL personnel executive. He's done it all. So I think his best route, and I think he's got a real shot at going there. Uh, and I would only hope that Al Wister could get in maybe through that um, uh, maybe 100th anniversary amnesty class if they're going to have one. Yeah. Uh, hey, I'd be all for Bucko going in as a contributor as long as it's not before Steve Sable. Yeah, well, that's going to be a tough argument because of Steve's dad being in there. But it's going to be, I, I think both of them are worthy, but I think that Steve's dad going in, and I know that, I, I think Goose told me that Steve said, uh, you know, if it's going to be one or the other, my dad should be going in first, and that's the kind of guy he was. And there was a passionate argument made for Steve this year, but I think Bucko is, is probably ahead of him in that line. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, you know, one of the things I was going to say, Domo, the, you know, there's often talk about, a special teams player, and should we pull one in or not? And you know, Steve Tasker seems to be, you know, the the, the guy who always gets uh, elevated. Uh, but I always think of Brian Mitchell. If I'm going to put in a special teams player, why not the guy who's the most productive return man in history? Uh, is he worthy of consideration if we're talking about a special teams 
player? Yeah, certainly worthy of uh, consideration. I mean, there are two two specialists that uh, you know with Eagle backgrounds that that I think are are worthy of discussing. One is is Brian, the other is uh, Sean Landetta, who I think is a, a very underrated punter. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Also, one of your USFL guys, Philadelphia. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Do you see? Do you see that happening? Do you, Do you think that? Uh, I mean, have you know, we got a couple of guys in there, but it was kicking and screaming. Uh, you think it's going to be a long time before we see another special teams guy uh, get in, or do you think Landetta or Mitchell might have a live shot? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a, a long shot. I mean, I, but there will be. I mean, there's going to be a kicker in as soon as. Uh, you know, Adam Venturi uh, retires and waits five years. So, um, and probably the same thing with the uh, Baltimore kicker. But I guess he's got a few more years before he retires. But I, I mean, I think both of them probably will. Uh, you know, are, are clo- as close as a kicker can be to no brainers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul, Paul, I got two questions for you. One, are the Eagles ever going to go back to the white helmet and the green wing? <laughs> 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 I'm afraid not, Goose. <laughs> oh, I love the helmet. <laughs> they, they want to go back. They do, they do want to go back to Kelly Green, though. But uh, uh, I forget what the the problem is. It has, there's some there's some uh, league uh, problem with why they can't switch back to Kelly Green because they'd love to. Because <laughs> everybody that has Midnight Green would have to switch and, and go buy new jerseys and it would make uh, uh, Jeff Lord even richer than he is now. This is your NFL. Okay, the other question. Uh, I love defense, so I love Eric, Eric Allen. 54 career picks, nine touchdowns. Where does he fit in the pecking order? we got Ty Law there, Bailey coming up. Where's, where's Eric Allen in all this? Ty who? Hey, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're asking at the contributors meeting in the selection committee. Who? Who? <laughs> and I thought we were friends. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Ron. I, I, I mean, you guys have gotten the letter I send every year with with three or four guys, uh, you know, that I pitch. Uh, Eric's on there along with every year with Dick Vermeil and Sam Mills. Um, you know, Eric has 54 career interceptions. That's one less than Aeneas Williams who we put in. He's got eight interception returns for TDs, which is one less than Aeneas. I mean, in my mind, he is he, he deserves to be in the room uh, for discussion. Uh, you know, whether he gets past that, you know, it depends on, on what the discussion is. But, uh, you know, it's just, I, I mean, I'm kind of befuddled that he, he has never... Uh, I just want to see him make the 25 semifinalists. Sam did once two years ago, did not this year, last year. Uh, but Eric has not gotten into this, you know, the, the final 25, and I just think it, he, you know, that he deserves to. Uh, I, I'm not sure why he's gotten forgotten. Um, I think you know he, he played on those great Eagle teams with with first Buddy Ryan and, and then Bud Carson, but he finished his career in New Orleans and, and Oakland. And I think you know sometimes that hurts guys. You know people forget the the bulk of their career where they where they established themselves. And I think that that's kind of the situation with Eric. But uh, you know in my mind, I saw him play for a number of years, and and, and in my mind, there's no question. He deserves to be in the room. Hey, Adama, let's stick with defense. I mean, Ron just passed me a note about Seth Joyner. Um, here's a linebacker who uh, seems to be relegated to the Hall of Very Good, and yet I'm looking at these numbers. Yeah. He had 52 sacks, 24 interceptions, 26 forced fumbles. I mean, those are numbers of a disruptive guy. Was he disruptive enough to deserve a hearing, at least, by the Hall? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's on my 25 every year. Um, I don't think he's as good as Sam Mills, um, but I mean, I think he's, you know, you mentioned the Hall of Very Good. I think he's probably above that. Um, got on, you know, I mean, when you consider the team he was on, you can understand why he sometimes gets um, overlooked with, you know, with Reggie and Jerome and Clyde Simmons and and uh, all those guys and Eric Allen and uh, yeah, you, the list goes on. That was a great defense, but uh, he certainly deserves to be considered. I mean, I think his career, he had a terrific career. You know, one last guy I wonder about, Domo, uh, and you never hear his name mentioned, is Clyde Simmons. He had 121 yeah. and a half sacks. He was 10th all-time when he retired, and eight of the nine ahead of him were in the hall. Uh, he was a big part of a great defense, as you mentioned. But a lot of people yeah. say, well, he was next to Reggie White, so no big deal. But he had 48 and a half sacks, uh, only two a year fewer than White in the six years after he wasn't with the Eagles. So uh, how yeah. do you view him? Another guy that's deserving, uh, Ron. Uh, you know, I mean, I think you're right. That's one of the reasons a guy like that gets overlooked is because of the other guys on the defense that, that you know, people credit with, with his success. But like you said, he, you know, you look at his sack numbers when he wasn't with those guys, and it was still impressive. Um, you know, he was a quiet guy who didn't promote himself. Um, he turned out to be a terrific coach, which I never would have guessed. Um, you know, I mean, I, 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 another guy that I, I definitely think deserves uh, to be considered, and a guy we haven't talked about, uh, Dick Vermeil. I mean, right, right. Mm-hmm. you know, he's got one Super Bowl, and that, that hurts him because, you know, we're always looking for those multiple Super Bowl winners. But, you know, when you consider his weird career, I mean, he took a Eagle team that was just horrible, had no draft picks for about three or four years. I mean, had no picks above the fourth round, turned it into a, a Super Bowl team, uh, you know, retires for, what, 14 years, wins the Super Bowl with the Rams, retires. <laughs> no, I guess he didn't retire after the Rams. Or yes, he did for a year, didn't he, before? Yeah. He went to the Chiefs yeah, yeah. And, and took those, them to the playoffs for a couple of years. Uh, you know, another guy that probably, you know, I mean, every year I try to trumpet his name, but, I, you know, he's probably never going to get in. Hey, Domo, thanks so much for the time. we got to run, but uh, see you down the road. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks, Domo. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Paul Domowich. Coming up, it's Ian O'Connor on his best-selling book on Ron's favorite football coach. I'll let you figure out who that is. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Ian O'Connor is a senior writer at ESPN.com, a longtime national sports columnist, and an author of New York Times bestsellers, Arnie and Jack, and the captain, The Journey of Derek Jeter, one of my favorite, favorite players. And now, well, now his most recent book, Belichick, the making of the greatest football coach of all time, seems destined to join that best-selling lineup. Now, Ian interviewed nearly 400 people for the project. Uh, None of them named Bill Belichick. Big surprise there. And is with us today to talk about what he learned about perhaps the most inscrutable figure in the history of coaching. And Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you guys for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, Ian, you mentioned in your introduction that this book proved to be the most daunting challenge of your career. Uh, How so? And how much of that was a product of Bill Belichick's uh, unwillingness to see this thing completed? 
Yeah, that was that was part of it, uh, and I, I did my last book on Derek Jeter, who was a distant private figure, but but Belichick is Jeter times a thousand, and and I had a relationship with Jeter, a professional one, going back to his rookie year. I had a non relationship with Belichick, and uh, also infamously wrote a column in two thousand saying that the uh, Kraft hire in New England was a bad hire, uh, so that, that sort of uh, was there as well. Um, I just think the, uh, Belichick, as, as you guys know, runs a Kremlin like empire, and to try to get behind those walls, start from scratch without a relationship with him, with him not cooperating, with him telling other people not to cooperate. There were a lot of hurdles in front of me. In a sense, he, he kind of made me better. I, I think he puts obstacles in front of his players to make them better, and I, I felt sometimes like I was an opponent or maybe even a player. And by him doing that, uh, not just uh, not cooperating but asking others to do the same, it just made me work harder and dig deeper and talk to more people. And I think he forgot about some people that I got to. And sometimes I felt like I was in a race with him to get to certain people. Uh, and uh, so in 30-plus years of doing this, yeah, this was not even close. This is by far the most challenging thing I've ever taken on, but also the most rewarding because I got to the finish line after uh, three years and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. So, Ian, what convinced you he was a subject you wanted to explore so deeply? funny because uh, I don't know if you guys know Mike Vaccaro. He's a columnist with the New York Post long time. Yep. And I was talking with him about whether or not to do it. And he said, do you really want to spend three years living with Bill Belichick? <laughs> and that, that, that gave me pause. I actually, I actually uh, took another five weeks after he said that to decide to do it. Um, so uh, I, I always thought he was the most fascinating and mysterious figure in American sports, and I don't think there's a close second. Even if you hate him, you have to, I think, admit or concede that he is pretty fascinating and intriguing. And, and so that's why I, I, I took it on. I also, again, being so wrong as I was in 2000, along with others, but... Um, I was sort of the poster boy for the Belichick doubters in the media anyway. And, and I was uh, very intrigued by how he pulled it off. How did this human being build this dynasty? At the time in the NFL, which you guys know, the whole thing is designed to prevent you from doing what he did. The schedule, the draft, free agency, the cap is supposed to bring teams at the top down to the middle, if not the bottom, and elevate the bottom feeders. And, yeah, AFC East dysfunction and incompetence is a part of that story, but I think what he has built over time, at the period he did it, puts him a notch above Lombardi and Brown and Hallis and the rest. I, there are people who disagree with that assessment, but that's the way I see it. Hey, hey Ron, um, you know, I'm talking to Ron Borges here. Ron, uh, I hear Ian say his non-relationship with Belichick made him be better. Why didn't that work with you? Let me tell you, Ian's blood brothers were the guy compared to me. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me say this. Ron, and I cited this, his work in the book, uh, his 2000 profile of Belichick, was, he got more out of him than pretty much anybody. Uh, that, was, that was the best work done, certainly on early Belichick in New England. And I don't know if anything really beat that later on. So that, that did help me. Ron's work over time definitely contributed to the book, and hopefully uh, that was reflected. But um, it is a – the guy is – I don't listen, his friends tell you how charming and engaging he is away from the facility. And uh, I think most of America has a hard time reconciling that, that image or, or notion with the reality of what they see in his press conferences. Well, Ian, I want to ask you about um, his relationship with Brady because these guys will tell you, I love me some Tom Brady, and I'm particularly fascinated by his relationship with his head coach. Now, you quote an unnamed source that the two were headed for a divorce a year ago, and the Brady always feared that Belichick would one day force him out. Can you explain what you've learned about the dynamics of their relationship and how it's changed? 
Yeah, uh, well, uh, as Ron can tell you, I mean, it's always been a transactional relationship. It's, it's always been a business partnership, nothing else. No love, no warmth, no affection. They've never had dinner even once, according to Tom Brady Sr. So, uh, it, but it worked. It worked, and it worked like no other partnership coach quarterback in the history of the league. But last year, after 18 years of unrelenting, unforgiving coaching, and, and Tom had five years of that, too, at Michigan, so it was really like 23 years, it wore him down, the Alex Guerrero situation, the, the Malcolm Butler benching really ticked him off, just like it did most Patriots. He put all those things together, and in late March, my sources told me he was still considering walking away rather than playing for his head coach again. And I think he actually would have, uh, at least after his release, if not retired, had Garoppolo not been traded, and Brady compelled that or inspired that with his play and also just being uncomfortable with Garoppolo's presence. And uh, I think had he not publicly talked about playing to at least age 45 as often as he did, if you take those two things away, I think perhaps he does walk away. But he realized if he did retire or ask for his release, that fan base that adores him to the nth degree would have turned on him, and I think he wanted absolutely no part of that. Well, Ian, as an old lacrosse player and a one-time Baltimore resident and a long-time Belichick uh, uh, tolerator, uh, I found two small anecdotes early in your book that were, to me, very telling. One was about <laughs> Belichick giving one of his lacrosse teammates at Wesley a little helping hand with his equipment, and the other one a secretary talking about Bill's apparent problems with the Postal Service. Right, uh, yeah. Uh, can uh, you tell us about those? Yeah, Maureen Kilcullen, she worked for Ted Marchabroda in Baltimore, Bill's first job in the NFL, uh, as you know, Ron, uh, in 1975. And uh, he was supposed to send the film out to the coaches, obviously on time. And I believe it was supposed to be there on Tuesdays. But she said if it was Tuesday, and they were supposed to get it, the opposing coaches, Bill always sent it so it got there on Wednesday. And she would she would feel these phone calls of screaming coaches uh, from the opponent uh, upcoming that Sunday. And she thought at the time Bill was just being a jerk and uh, didn't really have much use for her as a woman. She felt that. But then over time, as she's watched his career unfold, she wondered, and I, and I write this in the book, gee, I, I wonder if he was doing that for a competitive advantage. Maybe that was the first time he ever reached for an unfair competitive advantage or edge with an opponent. Uh, at Wesleyan, he, he was a senior, and uh, he was sort of like a slow point guard, that, that kind of lacrosse player. He had good vision, but lack of athleticism and foot speed held him back a little bit. But anyway, he had a freshman teammate named John McVicker, who was a really good athlete, a good football player, but had never played lacrosse. So Bill took his stick home one night to try to help him catch the ball and he created an illegal pocket but he kept one string loose so he handed the stick to McVicker the next day he's now a liver transplant surgeon in California and he told me the story and he said you know this is an illegal pocket and Bill said I know if an opponent points this out to an official and the ref asks for your stick turn around turn your back to him and pull on this string and it will make it legal again and then hand it to the ref so you see at age 20 Belichick is already uh, pushing the envelope uh, to the extreme, and I, I think in those formative years, you see the, the mindset and the philosophy of constantly doing that, forming, and, and, and obviously he took that with him throughout his NFL coaching career. Ian, at age 20, I would say he was already a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people call him that, and... Uh, you know, there are people, too, where they've looked at my subtitle and said, is he really the greatest coach of all time when you right, consider Spygate, right? right? That's right. a major strike against him, and I think that's a fair opinion to have. If you, if you disqualify him based on Spygate, I think that's fair. I don't, but I think it's fair. Mm -hmm. so, so who are the major coaching influences uh, on Belichick outside of his father? You know, who for some reason is just going to be... Uh, 
Al Larimore at Annapolis High in two ways. Just fundamentals. He ran like five plays every week off tackle. You try to stop us, we're going to out-execute you. Uh, that was his philosophy. He also said very little to the local media other than what he had to say. I think, Bel- And he also treated, that was during some really turbulent racial times in that area. Dese- desegregation was going on. Bill had come over from Bates, the predominantly black high school, to predominantly white Annapolis High that was taking in uh, African-American students from Bates. And there was a lot of problems at that time. And Al Larimore only discriminated against bad football players, and, and I think that had an impact on Bill. Steve Sirota at Andover was the opposite of, of Larimore in that he was a chameleon. Every week he would change his system uh, based on who the opponent was, and so I think Bill took that from him. Also, his style on the sideline, he never yelled, never screamed, and the one thing I've always liked about Belichick's style, unlike Parcells, is he's not a screamer, he's not a berater. He, he'll cut you in half in, in a film room with his dry wit and sarcasm, but I've always liked coaches who didn't coach with volume, and, and, and I think he done that or had that style throughout his career in the NFL. Hey, Ian, I want to go back to what you said just a couple minutes ago about the, the title of your book. Do you, believe he's the, do you believe he's the greatest football coach of all time? The, the title says the making of the greatest football coach of all time. Do you believe he's the greatest of all time? Yeah, I do. Uh, and I, I went to the high school in New Jersey where Vince Lombardi coached. Vince Lombardi was mm-hmm. only a head coach at two places, St. Cecilia's High School and, and the Green right. Bay Packers. And, and so the priests and nuns would not be happy with me to, to say he's not still the best. But <laughs> The nuns would crack my uh, knuckles with a ruler. Uh, but... I think Paul Brown is obviously in the conversation. Paul Brown had his last 15 years as a head coach. He didn't win one postseason game. That's a right. that's a lean stretch. Uh, but anyway, I think Belichick doing it again in that time frame where parity is a virtue, and the whole league is set up to prevent him from doing what he did. Uh, and, and listen, if Lombardi lived and he won a couple of championships in Washington, which he probably would have done, we're having maybe a different conversation. But unfortunately, tragically, he didn't. Uh, but I, I give Belichick the edge. I would put Lombardi second and Paul Brown third. You know, one thing just to continue on that uh, vein, because I, I always find this troubling. And look, he's a great coach. Uh, if not exactly someone I want dating my sister, but he's a great coach. Uh, having said that, in eight-plus years, he's a below 500 coach. And he only made the playoffs once. Uh, and, and he took a 19-1 team in the next year without Brady. Uh, they went 11-5. They lost five times with the exact same team except for the absence of one player. So how smart is he really? Is he the genius or is the quarterback the genius? Yeah, well, we I, never I think, know. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a fair point to raise. And uh, I think great coaches need great players. I'm not sure what John Wooden would have been without Lou Alcindor and Bill uh, Walton. I'm not sure what Auerbach would have been without Russell and Cousy and Joe Torrey with Mariano and Jeter. I think I was on the field that day uh, when, when Mo Lewis put the hit on Bledsoe and, and heard that hit. It's still the loudest hit I've ever heard in football, period. But uh, So they're 0-2. Belichick is 5-13 and 13 with Bledsoe. Now Brady trots in and basically saves him. I think there was a chance Bill gets fired at the end of that year if it continues the way it was going. Uh, I think that his record, you can argue, is very similar to Parcells' record without Belichick. Um, and uh, I, I think that I don't subtract from Belichick's legacy the fact that he had maybe, I think, the greatest football player ever at, at the center of his program. And uh, realizing that if Brady didn't walk into his life, there could have been real trouble there. And Bill doesn't get a third shot. I'm not going to subtract that. I think all great coaches need great players to bring it out of them. I think Phil Jackson was the same way. And uh, But I think if you want to point out that, hey, without Brady, if that doesn't happen, if Mo Lewis doesn't put that hit on him, Bill never, this never happens to Bill, 
I think that's a, a narrative that is uh, very reasonable and, and possibly true. We'll never know. I, I personally think if Bill, as long as Bill got a very good quarterback, somebody certainly better than what Kozar was at the end of his career in Cleveland, I think he would have won multiple ranks, not five, because I think Brady's worth one or two to him, definitely. But I also think if, if Brady were with somebody other than Belichick, he would have won three, maybe four, and that Bill was worth at least one to him. So, in a sense, I think they needed each other, but I would agree if at least a very good quarterback didn't walk into his life, this never would have happened to him. I, I, I think that's a, a very fair point. Ian, thanks so much for the time. we got to run, but best of luck with the book. Doesn't sound like you're going to need it. Take care. Thank you uh, oh, I need Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Ian. That was Ian O'Connor, author of the best-selling book, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Up next, it's the greatest two-minute drill of all time. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so Shay, see if Walt Anderson will blow that whistle, would you? That's the two-minute warning. Hey, thanks, Walt. That's right. We're on to the two-minute drill, so let's get going, guys. Khalil Mack or J.J. Watt? The player with the fewest health issues, Khalil Mack. Clark, you sound like John Gruden. Mac attack. <laughs> With Jameis Winston back, do you still believe in Fitzmagic? The Magic left Tampa and moved to Kansas City. <laughs> Are you joking, Clark? Amish furniture, Amish rifle. Yeah, love it. Who do you trust more with your fourth down call? Indy's Frank Reich or Penn State's James Franklin? I'll go with the rookie head coach, Reich, because Franklin's been around, should know better. Neither one, and Bill we trust. Bill Parcells, that is. When do we see Joey Bosa again? Hopefully before we see his brother Nick on an NFL field. <laughs> not until after the bye-bye week, which means not until November. Mike Tomlin says the NFL isn't fun to watch because of the number of penalties. So why do so many people watch? Because if watching a flag-filled football game is more entertaining than watching a five-hour baseball game. <laughs> oh, please. I would say lack of imagination or lack of foliage. Jerry Jones sees what he calls, quote, similarities, unquote, between the Dallas and Rams offenses. Like what? 11 men aside. <laughs> he stole my line. I'm speaking over my shoulder. I cannot believe it. <laughs> Cover right. your answers, Goose. <laughs> <laughs> the Colts were involved in games this year where the Redskins failed to sell out for the first time in over 50 years and where their own stadium had its lowest crowd ever. Why don't people want to see the Colts? Because Johnny Unitas is no longer the quarterback. Yeah, because they're twenty-one and thirty-one the past three years, and one and three start this year does not make fans want to sit in an indoor stadium in September. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a long answer. Zeke Elliott, Missy Elliott, Cass Elliott, or Elliott Ness? Jumbo Elliott. Ooh, good one. You guys know me though, Elliott Ness. I've always been a Law and Order man. Hall of Fame voter Tony Grossi started an online column called "Hey Tony," soliciting questions about the Browns. So, what's yours? Hey, Tony, have you ever skated on Lake Erie? <laughs> What's mine? Easy. Hey, stupid. <laughs> Matt Light was inducted to the Patriots Ring of Honor. When does Ron Borges get called? A year after Jim Plunkett. <laughs> Close. Right after Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Troy Vincent, Ian O'Connell, Lee Steinberg, and Paul Domowicz for joining us, Shay Raftus for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.